Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We were going to start a new series today that Jesus, you should know, but uh, Pastor Dan, who is scheduled to preach this morning, got sick this week and he is unable to preach today. So we're going to be in Galatians 5 and delay the start of that series one more week. And he asked me to mention to you that we have a new Bible reading plan for 2024. It's on the seats there in front of you. It's going to take us through the New Testament in 2024, and that's a great way to establish a regular rhythm of being in God's Word. Well, you might think of this as my anti-New Year's resolution sermon today. It's not that I'm against New Year's resolutions. They can be helpful. Uh, You can feel free to make them or not to make them. But I want to release you this morning from the burden of thinking that somehow you have to reinvent yourself in 2024. I don't want you to think that tomorrow, for one day out of 365, you get a blank slate and you can start afresh and you better perform really well this year, in this coming year, better than you did before, in order to become a whole new you. What I want to proclaim to you today is the good news that the most important thing about you has nothing to do with what you've earned or achieved or worked hard for. The most important thing about you is what you've already received in Christ. Nothing you can do is better than what God has already done for you in Jesus. You are known Loved, forgiven, adopted, and are being changed by Christ, if you believe in him. You didn't work for this, you didn't earn this, and you couldn't, no matter how hard you tried. It's a great thing to aim to grow in different ways in a new year, and if setting some resolutions helps you to do this, go for it. But my resolution for 2024 is to relax and receive to cultivate a habit of believing and trusting that Jesus is enough every time I feel anxious, to depend on him and his finished work, even when there's a storm raging outside or inside my mind. My resolution is not to try harder to figure out life, but to depend more fully on Jesus and to receive from his fullness the grace upon grace that he promises to give. I've been reading a book this month by John Andrew Bryant called A Quiet Mind to Suffer With. It's been a profoundly moving book for me. And it's one of those books that revolutionizes and rearranges your thinking. He speaks deeply about dependence on Christ in the battle that we face internally in our minds. And this comment stood out to me at Christmas time. He said, the word has been spoken. The only thing left is to say, amen. Which I think is another way of saying the only work God requires of us is to believe in the work that Jesus has already finished and accomplished for us. And that's the emphasis I'd like to bring this New Year's Eve. So here we are in Galatians chapter 5. And Paul's letter to the Galatians just has this radical message for believers that we are justified by grace through faith 
in Jesus Christ alone. And let's not assume that we know what we're talking about when we use those words. Let's put them on the screen just to refresh our definitions. Justification is God's declaration that sinners are righteous in his eyes, just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had always obeyed. Grace is God's undeserved kindness to us, giving us the opposite of what we've earned and deserved. And faith is looking away from ourselves to Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And in chapters 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul has been arguing from his own experience how God saved him from his sins and justified him through faith in Christ apart from any works of obedience to the Old Testament law. And he reminds believers in Galatia, this province in modern-day Turkey, that this has been their experience too. Then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul starts arguing from the Old Testament scriptures that this has always been God's way of dealing with people. There's, there's never been another way to be declared righteous in God's sight. This is the way Abraham was declared righteous, through trusting in God's promise. Finally, in, verses, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul shows us that this, this good news, this gospel, it doesn't just leave you the same person. It powerfully transforms the lives and the community of those who believe in it. So we're going to read verses 1 through 15 together of Galatians chapter 5. And let's worship the Lord as he speaks to us and encourages us through his word this morning. Beginning at verse 1, Galatians chapter 5. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then. And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note. I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit... By faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept any other view. But whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. 
This is God's word. We give him thanks for it. Now, this is one of these passages where the writer puts the bottom line up front. The bottom line, the main point of the passage is in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has freed you. What is the noun of that sentence? Freedom. What is the verb? Freed. We become a Christian by being freed by Christ from bondage to sin in the world and the devil, and Christ frees us in order to enjoy freedom. Freedom is both the means of our salvation and the goal of our salvation. Being a Christian is all about freedom in Christ. This is God's will for you, Paul is saying. Your freedom. Christ came and lived and died and preached and suffered and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and poured out his Holy Spirit into your life for this purpose, to make you free indeed. And when it says, for freedom Christ has set us free, the tense of the verb refers to an action that happened in the past, is now completed, but still has ongoing implications for our life today. We are free in Christ We are free from all the things that enslave the world. We are free from the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of our sins. We are free from the burdens of anxiety and performance. We are free from needing the approval of people. We are free from the condemnation of the devil. In this passage, Paul is writing with a passionate zeal. He's warning us. This is Paul's angriest letter. He is angry in Galatians because people are sneaking into the church and trying to rob Christians of the freedom that they have in Christ. And Paul wants us to be warned here that this freedom we have in Christ needs to be guarded carefully. There's a fragility because of our own hearts that we are tempted to let go of this freedom, to relinquish it. We need to guard it. You would think that someone who's been set free from slavery would never want to return again, wouldn't you? But the story of the Old Testament tells us otherwise. The Israelites were freed from their bondage in Egypt. And what did they want to do a few years later? They wanted to go back. It reminds me of a TV show that Kate and I were watching where a man had served his time in jail. And he was free to go back now into society. And after a week or so of his freedom, he went into a convenience store and held the customers at gunpoint until the police came and arrested him because he felt more comfortable living in jail than he did in free society. He'd rather be in bondage than free. How is it that this could happen, that those who've been freed in Christ would ever want to go back to slavery? Well, Paul's telling us it is something that can happen. And so he uses military language to to urge us, stand firm, keep alert, be strong. 
Resist attack. Stick together and holding on to the freedom for which Christ has set you free. Because if you let go of your freedom in Christ, you will be under a yoke of bondage. Trying to win God's favor by law-keeping or by your own performance is like being an ox tied to a heavy yoke. And the oxen work hard under the yoke, but they receive nothing but forage. Then they're led to the slaughter at the end when they can no longer pull their weight. That's what it's like to live under the burden of trying to achieve your status or your justification by your own works. You're going to tire yourself out trying to do what the law requires, but it'll be a slave master to you and you will die in the end. So the main burden of this text is to refresh our weary and worn out hearts with the joy of the freedom that Christ has won for us. That's the main burden. And the transformational intent of this text is to embolden us to resist any idea or rule or person that would make us forfeit our freedom and get entangled again in the slavery of looking to anything apart from Christ to make us feel worthy or accepted or righteous. So the Holy Spirit impresses this on us through Paul in three ways. The first is in verses 2 through 6. In this little paragraph, Paul urges us to be relentless against adding anything to the gospel of grace. The enemies of freedom want to turn Christianity into a do religion instead of a done religion. The gospel says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you are saved. You are rescued from this present evil age. You are free from bondage and guilt. Therefore, Obey God and live a life of love. That's the gospel way. The enemies of freedom instead come in and they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then live a good life. Do good works. Perform well. And eventually, somehow, through believing and through your own performance, you will be saved in the end. And that's how the enemies of freedom were infiltrating the church in Galatians. In Galatia, we read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 1, where they're called the circumcision party because they came down from Judea and they were telling these Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they were saying. Now, what's wrong with that? A lot. They're saying, they're suggesting that Jesus is not enough. He can help you get started on the path toward righteousness, but you've got to finish that by being moral, by being religious, by ceremonial works, by doing good. And look at how seriously warped this is in verse 2. Paul says, take note. I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. 
If you think you can add anything to what Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross that's going to make you more acceptable to God, you are saying you don't need Jesus at all. You're saying you can take care of this yourself. In verse 3, Paul says, if you want to go down that path and you accept circumcision, then you are obligated to keep the whole law, all of it. And if you do that, you're going to be in bondage again. Just like you were before you met Jesus. You were enslaved to idolatry. Paul calls it in chapter 4, the elementary principles of this world. And he's saying, now you're in danger of going back to the spiritual slavery you were under as pagans. Once you decide you need something or someone in addition to the Jesus who paid it all, to give you your righteousness, to give you your acceptance or your worth or your value, you are trading freedom for anxiety, guilt, and bondage. Don't do it. Paul says, if you think you have to add something to Christ, you're never going to become sure that you're good enough. You're always going to be afraid. Am I measuring up? Or maybe you'll become touchy and prideful because you'll think, I'm pretty good. And you'll look down on others who you think are less spiritual than you. Either way, it's bondage. If you try to add anything to Christ, you will lose him altogether. That's what Paul says in verse 4. It's severe. He says, you are severed from Christ, alienated from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. John Calvin puts it like this. Whoever wants to have a half Christ loses the whole. Or Tim Keller says, you can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ. If you go ahead and get circumcised as a way to diversify your spiritual portfolio or to add to your spiritual resume, you're going to lose Jesus altogether but because what you're really saying is that when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he was lying. It's not finished. There's more for you to do. You're saying Christianity is a do religion, not a done religion. The Bible says it is a done religion. Jesus paid it all. This is how we Live by faith. Verse 5, we eagerly await through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness in Christ alone. That's how believers live. The only other way is through our own efforts. And Paul says that doesn't work. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. It's irrelevant whether or not you keep the law of Moses. What matters is what? Faith. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Working through love. That's what matters. Now in our day and in our church, I don't think most of us are fighting about circumcision. I don't think that's the issue today. But it's a lot of other things that can creep in that we think we need to add to Christ in order to be spiritually acceptable. 
in order to be approved, in order to be worthy. Sometimes in churches like ours, it's doctrinal distinctives. You got to check all the boxes just right. I think Paul would say to us, for in Christ Jesus, neither Calvinism nor Arminianism counts for anything. All that matters is faith working through love. It's not your doctrinal pedigree. Or maybe he'd say neither premillennialism or amillennialism or panmillennialism, whatever it is you believe about the end times, that's not what counts before God. It's faith in Jesus working through love. Neither baptism by immersion or sprinkling counts for anything. It's faith working through love. Or maybe it's some kind of behavioral code. For in Christ Jesus, neither abstaining from all alcohol or drinking a glass of wine counts for anything. It's faith working through love. In Christ Jesus, neither voting for one candidate or another candidate counts for anything. It's faith working through love. In Christ Jesus, neither sending your kids to homeschool or public school counts for anything. It's faith working through love. That's what counts. So be relentless in adding anything to the perfect, completed person and work of Jesus Christ. And watch out for anyone who would try to persuade you otherwise and that brings us to the second point this morning. Resist anyone who hinders you from persevering in the grace of the gospel of Jesus. That's the emphasis of verses 7 through 12. And I love the metaphor Paul uses in this little paragraph for the Christian life, the metaphor of running in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said that he made a return visit to Jerusalem after he was converted to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Running is a metaphor for the Christian life. I like to run, but I don't always feel like I'm running when I'm trying to do it. Sometimes I feel like I'm barely limping along. And a lot of times it feels that way in the Christian life. We don't feel like we're running. We feel like we're slowly creeping or crawling along the way. But Paul, what does he say to them in verse 7? You were running well. You were running well. I bet they were surprised to hear that. We don't usually feel like we're running well in the Christian life. Martin Luther explains it like this. He says, God judges differently than we do. What seems very slow to us runs swiftly in God's sight. Friends, church, if you're keeping your eyes on Jesus through the storms of this life, if you're depending on him when nothing makes sense, when you can't even figure out your own confused thoughts, if you're saying, Jesus, I still trust you even though I don't have energy to try harder right now. Even though I can't seem to get my act together, I trust you, Jesus. If you are 
through the Spirit, eagerly awaiting the hope of righteousness in Jesus alone, through faith in him, then you are running well. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you feel like you're limping or crawling. God's not concerned about the speed. The Spirit is carrying you forward to glorious victory. You're going to get to the finish line in a cross. You're going to be crowned with a victor's crown if you are simply trusting in Jesus, depending on him. You are running well even if you stumble, even if you get distracted and discouraged and disappointed. And that's where the enemies of freedom want to cut in on the Christian's race. They want to, you know, as you're running along, they want to trip you up. They want to disqualify you. They say, hey, look at you, puny little weak, trusting in Jesus. Who do you think you are? You're not a good Christian. You're not making any progress. At this rate, you'll never get to heaven. Come, follow us. We'll show you a better path. Here, this is how you live the the victorious Christian life. This is how you really be a good Christian. We'll load you up with a few do's and don'ts and burdens and requirements, and then you can feel good about how you're running your race. What does Paul say about that verse 8? This persuasion does not come from the Lord who calls us. Anyone who comes in and tries to persuade you that you need to do something more than trust in Jesus, that you're just a puny little weak Christian and, and depending on Jesus isn't the way to go, Paul says, don't listen to them. That's not the Lord speaking. Don't let other people tell you how to live the Christian life if they're not pointing you to Christ. And those people, they have power. Maybe they appear to be more educated than Paul, more godly than Paul. Maybe they're better looking than Paul is. But he says in verse 9, they're like a poisonous yeast spreading through the church, corrupting God's people with additional requirements other than trusting in Jesus alone. And churches, friends, are destroyed by people who come in with some other agenda than Jesus and the gospel. One or two people who come into a church and seek to make much of themselves instead of looking to Christ and glorifying him can ruin a church. They know how to persuade. And they can spread like a virus and get a following and create huge problems as they go above the line of Scripture and trouble the flock of God with things outside of Christ. And Paul says in this letter that, They're not of the Lord. They're like wolves in sheep clothing. He refuses to give them an inch. He will preach Christ and him crucified. This is his message. He doesn't hold back in his condemnation of these enemies of freedom in verse 12. (laughs) This gets a little graphic. He wishes that instead of just circumcising themselves, they go the whole way and castrate themselves. Because he doesn't want these enemies of the gospel to have the power to reproduce themselves in the church. He wants them to become impotent. I find this little paragraph, verses 7 through 12, extremely encouraging. It reminds me as a pastor to be an encourager of you as God's people. 
If you're staying focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are doing well. You are running well, church. Don't get your eyes off of Christ and him alone. These words remind me of Jesus' words where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A life of dependency on Jesus is a life where every burden we carry, he's carrying it with us. His spirit is walking with us, putting wind into our sails. What did Jesus say when, when the, someone came to him and said, we want to do the works of God? Jesus says, this is the work of God. You want to do God's work? Believe. <laughs> Believe in the one he sent. That's the work God requires of us, to believe in Jesus, to depend on him. If you do that, you're running well. Resist the manipulation of anyone who would tell you otherwise, even if it's your own mind telling you that. Don't let anyone hinder you from persevering in the grace of the gospel. And don't be afraid that you can emphasize God's grace too much that you can go overboard believing in the grace of God in Christ. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid that if you just believe in Jesus too much, depend on him too much, that somehow you're going to become lazy and lax in the Christian life and live however you please. It doesn't work that way. Because Paul tells us in verses 13 through 15 that the true gospel actually has the opposite effect. And that's our third point this morning. Be sure that the freedom of the gospel is the most powerful source of transformation in the Christian life. In your life, in the life of the church, this is and always has been the way churches change, the way people change to become more like Jesus. He emphasizes his bottom line once more in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. So he's still on the same main point. It's about freedom in Christ. But then he makes very clear in the last two verses that true freedom is being set free from sin, not for sin. Freedom is not living according to the flesh. The flesh is bondage. Freedom is being set free from sin. Real freedom is not anarchy. Just read the book of Judges for an example of what happens when everyone does whatever's right in their own eyes. What the gospel does is frees us from slavery in order to make us servants of one another in love. Legalism breeds self-righteousness. It focuses you on your own self, your own performance, takes your eyes off of Jesus, and the more you look at yourself, the more you feel good about yourself and negative about other people and judgmental. But looking to Jesus and depending on him leads you to a life of love, which is what the whole law is about, loving God and loving your neighbor. 
That's what Paul says in verse 14. Without Jesus at the center, what happens to churches? We become cannibalistic, biting one another, devouring one another, consumed by one another. That's what verse 15 is warning us against. But when we come to Jesus and drink freely from the all-satisfying fountain of his grace upon grace upon grace, his spirit makes us like streams of living water full of love toward one another. Do we want our church to be a place where people who are afflicted are comforted and people who are weak are made strong and encouraged and people who are enemies are loved? Do we want this to be a place where we forgive annoyances easily and overflow with gratitude? Then boldly believe the gospel of freedom is what Paul's saying. Keep depending on Jesus, and he will make you a beautiful community of love. That's what Paul's doing here. Contrary to our fear that giving people too much freedom will cause them to go off the deep end and live however they please, Paul is showing us that the true preaching of the free gospel has the power to transform churches into communities that are filled with love. And we love because he first loved us. So stand firm, therefore, in the freedom that is yours in Christ and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Don't let anyone come between you and Jesus, for freedom Christ has set you free. And you are free in Christ to make a whole new kind of New Year's resolution for 2024. Resolve to believe that Jesus has set you free. Resolve to relax and receive from his fullness. Resolve to radically trust that Jesus is enough for you. Resolve to depend on him moment by moment for everything. I love how John Milton put it in Paradise Lost. He said, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts, who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. Let's pray together.